You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's March 11th. Russian President Vladimir Putin's astonishing lapse of judgment in invading Ukraine has fueled speculation about his state of mind. Is Putin just making mistakes? Or is he irrational? And what does the answer mean for nuclear deterrence? According to Rand's Edward Geist, an expert on both Russia and nuclear strategy theory, Putin's misguided actions and apocalyptic rhetoric are, quote, not necessarily a symptom of a deranged mind. Autocratic rulers like Putin and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un have incentives that are very different than those of an ordinary person, so much so that their rational goals are warped. Autocrats tend to conflate the continuation of their rule with their personal survival, and with good reason. Perpetuating their rule at any cost, or even at risk of nuclear war, is insensible to everyone else, but may be rational for them. But if Putin is not a sensible man, Geis says, then the West's devastating economic sanctions may not change his behavior. Instead, other, more rational Russians may need to be the targets of cost-imposing measures to influence Russia's policies in Ukraine. As Putin grows increasingly isolated and desperate, he still might try to escalate the conflict rather than back down, potentially endangering countless innocent people. That's why Western leaders should plan for the worst and hope for the best, Geis says. Let's discuss another important topic related to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the question of whether Finland and Sweden might now join the NATO alliance. Traditionally, having a NATO membership option but not exercising it has been seen by both Finland and Sweden as a deterrent to Russia. Moscow has long feared an expanded NATO and may have been moderating its behavior in the Nordic-Baltic region as a result. But Russia's aggression in Ukraine and Putin's questionable rationality that Deanna just alluded to may change this dynamic. That's according to Rand's Jean Germanovich, who notes that Helsinki and Stockholm now have a difficult cost-benefit calculation to make. And to be clear, this decision is entirely up to Finland and Sweden they must weigh the benefits of NATO membership, primarily the alliance's mutual defense guarantee, against Putin's potential retribution, both during the membership process and immediately after a session. From NATO's vantage point, the case is more straightforward. Adding Finland and Sweden would offer the alliance more predictability in a time of uncertainty, first-rate military capabilities, and an injection of democratic values. That brings us back to Putin. If Finland and Sweden do decide to join NATO, Putin could respond with a range of actions, from the now familiar toolkit of cyber attacks, to interruptions to energy supplies, to shows of force. But with the vast majority of Russia's attention and military resources dedicated to Ukraine, and an enhanced U.S.-European posture in Europe, the current moment might actually present a lower-risk environment for NATO to expand, as counterintuitive as that might sound. 
Nonetheless, it's important for the alliance to have contingency options to deal with whatever Moscow's reaction might be in such a situation. As Germanovich puts it, Western leaders should be ready for anything. On an average day in the U.S., more than 120 people die by gunfire. Yet there is little scientific evidence to help understand why gun violence happens and what to do about it. Rand researchers have been working to fill this vacuum through the Gun Policy in America initiative, which seeks to establish a shared set of facts that will improve public discussions and support the development of fair and effective gun policies. One of the latest studies from the initiative uncovered something that may seem unthinkable amid the poisoned politics of America's gun debate. Room for compromise. Our researchers survey nearly 200 gun policy experts for their views on policies ranging from weapon bans to stand-your-ground laws. The experts included gun policy researchers, advocates, and congressional staffers who work on gun issues. As expected, they split into two opposing camps. One favored tougher laws and more restrictions on guns. The other favored more permissive laws with fewer restrictions. The two groups sharply disagreed on some issues, of course. But there was some overlap in a few areas. For example, many people from both groups agreed that child access prevention laws could be good policy. There was also agreement about keeping guns out of the hands of anyone subject to a domestic violence restraining order. And both sides generally agree on what the highest priority objectives of gun policies should be. First, preventing firearm homicides. Second, preventing firearm suicides. And third, protecting privacy rights. So what does all this mean? Well, According to Rand economist Rosanna Smart, who led the study, it means there's some hope for a path forward. Quote, This is a debate where people think the other side is just wrong or irrational, and there's no way to ever change their minds. One of our main takeaways is that we're maybe not as far apart as we think we are. Sometime in the next few years, the number of hours worked by the world's machines will equal the number of hours worked by humans. This points to the fact that today's workers are not trained for tomorrow's jobs, and this digital skills gap has been growing faster than ever since the pandemic hit. In a recent study, researchers from RAND Europe looked at what can be done to help workers develop the skills they need to take on jobs that might otherwise be lost to automation. They found that there are no simple fixes, but companies and business leaders, governments, and workers all need to do their part. Companies need to become more agile in distributing and redistributing their existing employees to better meet their needs, rather than trying to recruit their way out of the skills gap. They also need to do more to help employees learn the technical skills, like coding, and the soft skills, like working in a team, that they need to succeed. National governments can help by investing in vocational programs and other supports for displaced workers. And as for the workers, well, the future requires a different mindset when it comes to learning and adapting. Education no longer ends with a high school diploma or a university degree. The skills they have now might not be relevant in a few years. 
Doing nothing to close the digital skills gap would be costly. The major economies could lose trillions of dollars in potential growth over the next five years. India, South Africa, and Mexico would be hit especially hard, and so will groups that can least afford the economic loss: women, older people, racial and ethnic minorities, and those living in rural areas. America's teaching workforce is overwhelmingly white, while its student body is increasingly diverse. This is a troubling trend. Evidence suggests that students of color benefit from having teachers who look like them. Their test scores, graduation rates, and college going all improve, with no adverse effects on white students. To learn more about what can be done to recruit more people of color into teaching, Rand researchers evaluated six teacher preparation programs focused on diversity. They identified a few keys to success. First, lowering costs for teacher trainees. Across every program that was studied, aspiring teachers of color described how reducing costs in both time and money were essential to their decisions to enter the profession. Second, recruiting from the community. School staff in non-teaching roles, such as teachers' aides, are more than twice as diverse as teachers. The programs in the study reported that recruiting individuals already working in schools was critical to their success. Another successful strategy was stepping up outreach to nearby minority communities. Third, helping trainees with licensing. The tests to get a teaching license are known to disproportionately screen out minorities, even as they are imprecise predictors of teacher quality. Programs address this problem in different ways. For example, one program set earlier application deadlines and provided accepted candidates with intensive test preparation. Overall, these findings illustrate that there are effective ways around the hurdles that have been keeping otherwise interested people of color from becoming teachers. And if such programs continue and expand. It could help ensure that the teaching workforce better reflects the diversity of the students it serves. Let's close today's show by recognizing International Women's Day, which was this past Tuesday. The diversity of talent and experience among women who work at Rand is reflected in the quality and the impact of their policy research. And there is a lot of Rand research that seeks to address problems that affect women around the world. Our experts study everything from gender pay gaps to how to help women who are refugees to stopping sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military. We wanted to end today's show by highlighting the voice of one Rand researcher, Chloe Bird. Bird recently studied inequities in healthcare research as part of an initiative of the Women's Health Access Matters nonprofit foundation. She and her colleagues noticed that funding of research on men's health has been favored over women's health. This ends up influencing how diagnostic criteria and treatments are developed. They're based on what a disease looks like in men. So the team wanted to know: What if the U.S. closed this gap in research funding? How might everyone benefit? Here's Bird from a new Rand video published this week. We found that doubling the the NIH funding for research on coronary artery disease in women would produce a return on investment of nine thousand five hundred percent over thirty years, and we've studied、um, 
up to four different disease areas now. All of them we find a positive return on investment, um, but it varies greatly across the diseases. Um, but it's actually quite remarkable and indicative of the extent to which we're underinvested in research overall, and especially in research on women. I'll repeat that eye-popping stat in case you missed it. A return on investment of 9,500%. As Bird notes, investing more in women's health could be one of the biggest opportunities in healthcare in generations. If you're interested in this study or other research projects on issues that affect women, check out Rand's pinned Twitter thread for International Women's Day. Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered today, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.